Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Have ever been grounded before or put in time out? Are you guys willing to admit it? All right, we got a couple. Uh, sometimes parents use that as a technique to uh, help children learn. They get put in time out. Now, most kids don't like that. Uh, that's kind of the, the purpose of it. And uh, I don't know how long a, a child has uh, been put in time out, if there's like a record, a world record or something. But usually, you know, if it's like, oh, you're grounded for a week from video games or from watching movies or something like that. It just devastates a child. It seems like that's an eternity. Well, imagine kids being put in timeout for 70 years. That would be quite uh, the undertaking, wouldn't it? Well, uh, that probably, uh, that would never happen to you, I don't think. But that's where we find the people of Israel um, in our text this morning is they're coming off a 70-year timeout. So because of their sin and their unrepentance, God sent them uh, into Babylon to be in captivity for 70 years because they would not follow the Lord. And, you know, most adults here today, you know, we're not really put in timeout or uh, disciplined in that way anymore. Uh, But try to relate to that, to, to understand what these people have gone through and to see that they're there because they harden their hearts and refuse to follow God. And we got to ask, why were they there? Uh, If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, Jeremiah explains the reason for why they were sent into captivity. So starting in uh, verse 4 of Jeremiah 25, uh, notice why they're sent into captivity. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. So they stopped listening to God. They stopped listening to his word. So in verse 5, they said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. So these people, they're bringing this uh, discipline upon themselves by their own idolatry and unrepentance. And in verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of myrrh and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here they are. 
they, they're living in rebellion and unrepentance. And a great place to read about this is in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10, where Ezekiel is taken away into captivity and he's brought back in a vision to Jerusalem. And he's led through the temple. And in the temple, he sees the priests worshiping the sun. And he sees the priests worshiping the fertility gods. And uh, the people of Israel have just completely rejected Yahweh as their God, and they're worshiping idols. And so this leads to God sending them into captivity for 70 years. Something interesting in verse 12 is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who's used to discipline the Israelites, uh, God will punish him for how he takes the Israelites. So he says, Then it will come to pass when 70 years are complete that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So in Ezra chapter 1, we see that Cyrus, the king of Persia, is now king. It's his first year. So Persia has just conquered Babylon. So God promised that after 70 years, he'd come back, he'd take out the kingdom of Babylon and send the people of Israel back. And so these are the people uh, that we're looking at in Ezra chapter 1. And then quickly, if you turn, around, turn over to Jeremiah 29, uh, this is probably the most well-known text in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a promise to these people that after the 70 years, God will bring them back. He will bring them back to Jerusalem and help them uh, rebuild the temple. So look at verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So you're probably familiar with verse 11, but the context of this promise that God gives here is God restoring the very specific people we're reading about in Ezra chapter 1. So turn back to Ezra now. And you got to put yourself in these people's position. So this is a nation. They're a nation that had a government, a king, priests, uh, a nation that very specifically had a purpose from God to be a light to the, to the nations, to show what God was like. And God was their king. It was a theocracy. So they functioned under God as their king. And you recall uh, back in their history that they asked for a king like other nations. And that was not a happy thing. That was kind of sad that they kind of rejected God as their king and said, we want a man to be our king. Like We want to be like other nations. And so in the progress of time, you know, we eventually get to David. And then the kingdom starts to fall apart as uh, Israel does not follow God. And so, uh, 70 years before we get to our text, the kingdom has fallen to such a state that they're worshiping idols and not repenting of their sin, and God sends them into captivity. So coming out of that, they have a very specific mission to go back and be the people of Israel, to be the nation uh, that under God is a light to the nations to show what a holy people set apart to God look like. So they would need certain things. They need a Davidic king. They need priests. They need the temple. They need to, in verse uh, 
uh, five of our texts, it talks about how they're going back to build the temple. They need the things that go in the temple. Uh, They need food and provisions. Uh, They need all these people to come with, to be citizens in the kingdom. And so all of these things seem insurmountable, but we're going to see that very briefly, because of God's promise to keep his word, he provides it all for them. Uh, right away in what they need to start up the kingdom again. So we'll look at that in a second, but we, like Israel, have a mission. We have a different mission. Our mission is not to go to Israel and build a temple and be the nation of Israel. Our mission is, as the body of Christ, to go into all the world and make disciples, to share the gospel. And God has promised, uh, Jesus promised to build his church He said, I will build my church, and that is a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would all say that we believe that, but I know in my own heart, when I'm confronted with an opportunity to share the gospel, I have doubts and fears in my mind that God can work that promise out in my life, that I'm going to be able to uh, be on mission for God. And so what this text does is it addresses our doubts and fears to show that God is faithful and he's been fulfilling his purposes and mission for a long time. And he's been getting it done because he's powerful enough to do that. So as we look at our text, uh, we're going to be asking, can we truly be on mission for God? Is that something that normal people like you and me can do? Um, As we read about in the book of Acts, we see Paul doing all these crazy, brave things for God and having courage. And we think, how could I do that? I'm just a normal person. And, you know, you think about the time when Paul was, uh, someone bound his hands with his own, or bound their hands with their belt, with Paul's belt, and said, uh, whoever is the owner of this belt will be bound if he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul says, thanks for your concern, but I, I need to follow God's purpose for me anyways. So are we a people that that are ready to trust God's promises, to trust and to move forward by faith and to be on mission for him? And I think this text addresses uh, some of our doubts and fears as we look to be on mission for God. And so I think the way that uh, this happens for us is that we can trust God's promises because he keeps his promises. So we can be on mission for God because he keeps his promises. So look at me with me at Ezra chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So right away, uh, the author of Ezra, of this part here, says that this is happening because God promised through the prophet Jeremiah to do this. God is keeping his word. He is faithful to his word. So to what extent is God willing to go to to keep his word? I think the the rest of chapters 1 and 2 show us here that God, as we sang about the ancient days, uh, the all-powerful sovereign God, that he can uh, do whatever he wants to keep his word. And so we're going to see him. He's going to stir the hearts of uh, this pagan king in Persia, Cyrus. Uh, He's going to have uh, this pagan king hand over all these riches that belong to Israel that Nebuchadnezzar stole years ago. He's going to have 
uh, fathers of the house of Israel, these leaders, he's going to stir them to go back, and he's going to provide all the provisions that they need to do this. So let's look down through the text and see some of these things that the Lord does to keep his word. So at the end of verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given to me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at uh, Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So this is just a bizarre statement. So imagine you're one of the the king's counselors, and one day he wakes up and says, I got an idea, guys. You know how we just took out Babylon? Let's take those people, Israel, and send them back to their land and give them all their stuff back. That just, it seems like a bizarre uh, thing for a king to, to wake up one day and decide to do. I don't know, if I was one of his counselors, I'd be like, you're crazy. Like, why would we give up all, all of our slaves and all of their riches that we rightfully stole from Babylon, who rightfully stole it from Israel? But yet, here he is saying these things in this proclamation uh, that astound us. And look at how he describes God there in verse 2. Uh, he says that the Lord God of heaven has given him these nations. He's recognizing God's dominion over all things. And then he recognizes that God is the one who's commanded him to build this house in Jerusalem. And so he is uh, listening to God as God stirs his spirit. So he describes God further in verse 3. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. So he says, let the, the, the followers of Yahweh God go back to Jerusalem. And he recognizes that the Lord God of Israel, he is God. And then he instructs people in verse 4, the ones who don't go, the ones who stay behind to kind of give offerings to finance uh, this expenditure to go back and rebuild the temple. So Cyrus, uh, he would have been a polytheistic, uh, he, he would have believed in many gods. And so we're unsure if he really believes that, that Yahweh God is the one true God, or if he's just kind of adding on Yahweh God to uh, the list of his gods that he's willing to worship. But either way, we get to the behind-the-scenes look that this is what God is doing. God has stirred the heart of the king to do this because he's going to keep his promise through the prophet Jeremiah. So we see that God is powerful enough to uh, turn the heart of the most powerful ruler at the time. And then in verse 5, he now uh, instructs and, and leads the leaders of the house of uh, the heads of the father's houses of Israel. So in verse 5, then the heads of the father's Houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So at the end there, we see the, the mission that God has the people of Israel on. Their mission is to go back and rebuild the temple. And so in these first few verses, we see that God can very easily direct authorities in this world. 
So when God wants to fulfill his promise, uh, he can direct authorities. So this is helpful for us, as we've just read in Jeremiah 25, that even God uses bad authorities like Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his purposes. So all through this captivity and now them being released from captivity, we see that God has complete control over uh, world rulers, over authorities in this world. And this should be reassuring to us uh, because God is in control. He is God. He is the one who has the power and is directing authorities to accomplish his purposes. So in these first few verses, we see that we can trust God's promises as he directs authorities over us. So I realize that uh, Generally, we have a suspicious view of authority in general. Uh, We often look at authorities and doubt that they have our best interest in mind. And that's often true. Oftentimes, uh, authority is misused uh, for personal gain. And we see that all the time in a fallen world where uh, people have authority given to them by God and then they misuse it for uh, their own gain. But We know that God is the author of authority, that he is the authority. He is the only one who has absolute authority. So all other authority that is uh, given and used on earth is derived from God, who is the absolute authority. And so we can think about uh, how we can trust God despite what authorities are doing over us. I remember when I was uh, younger, I was at summer camp, and uh, I wasn't walking with the Lord at the time. I was a believer, and uh, while I was at camp, uh, there was a theme going around the camp that you should pray and ask the Lord that uh, whatever might happen, that he would, if I ever walked away from the Lord, that he would bring me back to himself. And that's a good prayer to pray. And I prayed it and I said, Lord, you know, I, I want to walk with you uh, all my life. If I'm living in unrepentance, I want you to bring me back. And that's a good thing to do. But what I didn't realize at the time was that I was rejecting the authorities that God had given me in my life to help me actually do that. God had given me Christian parents uh, who were there to help me learn to deal with sin and walk with the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And not everybody has that, I realize. But at that time, I was rebelling against my parents. And that was God's instrument in my life um, at that time to help me uh, walk in repentance and walk with the Lord. And the same was true uh, for me as an adult, that, that it's easy for me to uh, not want to be held in accountability to a church family. But God has given the body of Christ authority to help us continue to walk with Christ. That's what church discipline is. And we, we get scared of that because it's been misused before and uh, it's frightening to put ourselves under that. But that is the answer to the prayer that I prayed in junior high. The answer to that prayer is find a gospel-believing church that loves the Lord and is following Christ and become a member and submit yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ and let them speak into your life. Let them hold you accountable and call you to repentance and you do the same for them. And 
as, a, as, you know, at summer camp, uh, God had already provided the means for the answer to that prayer, and I was ignorant of it. And uh, it's been fun to read God's word and realize that along the way, that God has given us these good things that we need in authority, but we're so quick to rebel against them and to reject them and not to trust them. I know in day-to-day life, we don't have verse 1. We don't get to see the behind the scenes of how God is using authorities. We trust the Lord to be doing those things as he promised he would, but we don't know that the Lord is stirring up uh, the authority over us to do a certain thing. We don't get to see those things. We have to trust the Lord uh, without seeing uh, what he's doing and what he's trying to accomplish. And so I hope that's an encouragement to you that even as you walk through life, that God's promises are true even when people aren't following Jesus. So the people of Israel, they should have known that God would bring them back. When you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel is reading in Jeremiah in captivity, and he has this moment where he reads about that the 70 years are almost up, and he gets so excited that this is going to happen, and this is what leads him into having a, a vision of the 70 weeks and things like that. But that's the people we need to be where we're reading God's word and we see his promises that he's given to us as the body of Christ and as individual believers coming true and rejoicing in those things. And again, in our world today, we tend to look on any authority with suspicion. And this is because people have misused authority, they have abused with authority, and sometimes we are under uh, bad authority that is not following Christ, and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we reject those authorities because we don't like what they're asking us to do. So you can think of a child who's told uh, to do something they don't want to do, but that's good for them, that a parent is lovingly trying to help them do and the child doesn't want to do it, but you're trying to tell them, I'm telling you to do this because I love you. You know, the classic example is, get out of the street, there's a car coming, right? Me yelling at my child to get out of the street is a loving exercise of authority, and if a child rejects my authority and chooses to stay in the street, it's fatal for them. And so children, you know, should obey their parents because it's right, and it's good, and it's helpful, And that's the way God intended it for it to flourish. In Jonathan Lehman's book, Authority, he lays out several kinds of authority, two types of authority. There's uh, how he calls it, there's command authority and there's counsel authority. So a parent has command authority. I tell you what to do and you need to do it. You need to respond and obey. And that authority has God backing them. There's... uh, You think about like a general in the army. They have command authority. Um, You think about, uh, you know, the government. They have command authority. They say this is the law and you need to obey it. So what's in common with all command authorities is that God has ordained them and given them an instrument of enforcement. So parents have the rod. uh, Governments have law enforcement and the judicial system. And uh, God has ordained these authorities to exercise uh, c- 
control for the good of all people. But then there's also council authority. And these are often seen in, in husbands and in pastors. So uh, we don't have a built-in mechanism for enforcement. Our job as husbands and pastors as well is to say, look at what God's word says. Will you follow God as I follow him? And we're not called to be authoritarians where my way or the highway, so to speak, we're called to know God's word. And when you think about Ephesians, where God talks about how a husband leads his wife, uh, he's instructed to sacrifice uh, a pastor and a, a husband's authority is sacrificial authority. It's authority like Christ for the church, as Christ is the head. A husband is supposed to give up his life, like Christ did, for the well-being of his wife, so that his wife will be able to be presented blemishless and without spot. And so you can kind of see these different authorities, and all of these authorities are derived from God, who is the author of authority. And all authority uh, can be misused and abused because we're not perfectly like God. And so my encouragement to you is if you know, all of us have authority in some respect, is to use your authority to help others follow Christ. To sacrifice and not use your authority to please yourself, but to help the other person to know and follow and love Jesus more. We know as a church family that Jesus is the head of the church, that, that he is the authority over the church, but that he also has under shepherds. And we even have this in our church covenant, uh, where in paragraph five, uh, we promise together to follow Christ and to follow his shepherds that he has given to the church. And again, we're not supposed to be telling you this way or the highway, but as we know the promises of God, let's follow him together. And sadly, sometimes authority is misused, even as someone is in a position where they could be using that for God. So sometimes we see God use wicked authorities like Nebuchadnezzar to do his will on earth. And sometimes we see people like Cyrus, who God uses in a positive way to bring them back. And God can use both good and bad authority for his glory and to accomplish his purposes. So maybe you're in a position today where you find yourself um, under abusive authority, someone who is using their authority to please themselves. My encouragement to you would be to seek counsel, to uh, appeal to another authority uh, to see what would be the best way forward. So sometimes we can stay within a relationship or a position where we're not experiencing good authority for God's glory and to show that he is good and that he can work out beautiful things even in sinful situations. But sometimes God wants us to be removed from uh, abusive authority uh, structures. And so my encouragement to you would be to look to other authorities for help and counsel in what to do and to trust the Lord as you walk through that. You know, there's a lot of children in here, and I know as a child, I didn't 
respect my parents all the time. And that's going to happen. We all sin. But children, your parents are there and they love you. And yeah, they sin, and I hope they confess their sin to you and repent, but they're there because they love you, and they want to help you flourish and walk with the Lord. And so even as children, you can trust the Lord and his promises and walk under the authority that God has given to you, even as uh, the people of Israel did here. And if you are someone who uh, holds authority, Use that authority to help others. Just like Christ uh, set aside some of his, uh, you know, authority and his position in heaven to come to earth, to die on the cross for our sins, we can give up our rights and privileges. We can give up the things that we love, the preferences we desire, uh, in order to help others follow Christ and trust him as well. And so as we see Behind the scenes here, uh, we get a glimpse of what God is doing, and we don't often get to see that in our own lives, and we're left to trust God's promises that he's doing exactly what he promised to do, even when it doesn't necessarily feel like it. And so my encouragement to you is to continue to trust God's promises as he directs authorities over you, and lean into the authorities that he's given and follow Christ as they follow him as well. So first we see that uh, God keeps his promises, and we can trust his promises as he directs authorities over us. And then secondly, we see that God's, we can trust God's promises because he provides for all of our needs. So remember, the people of Israel are heading back to start up the kingdom again, to build the temple, and to be the nation, and have Uh, the sacrificial system, and all that again as the nation of Israel. And so they need certain things. So look at verse 6 with me. And all those who are around them encourage them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. So you can think about this going away party, so to speak, that as these people leave to follow God's promise to bring them back, uh, the ones who stay behind give Uh, to help them on their way. Now, again, in verse 7, we have one of those kind of funny moments where Cyrus uh, wakes up one morning. He's like, hey, let's give them all their stuff back, too. All the the riches that we have taken from them that uh, belong to them and are for the house of the Lord, let's give those back. So look at verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithada, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So Sheshbazar is Zerubbabel. It's the same guy. One's his Persian name and one's his uh, Israelite name. And Zerubbabel is found in the genealogy of Jesus from the line of David. So this is a Davidic king that's leading the people back to Israel. God has provided them with a Davidic king. And uh, there's this cool exchange here where Cyrus brings out all these riches that they've stolen from the temple. And he's the, the king of the known world, this king of Persia, is handing them over to the king of the Israelites, that's been in captivity for 70 years, this, this man that has 
you know, no rights. He's a, he's a captive in Persia, and here the king is sending him back and giving him the things that they need to be the kingdom again. And then in verse 9, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So God provided everything that they need to go back and, and get a jump start on being the nation of Israel again. So God gave them a mission. He promised to bring them back, and he didn't just send them empty-handed. He handed them everything that they need before they even departed on the journey. And this reminds us that when God makes a promise, when God has us doing something, he gives us everything that we need along the way. And it's true of us that sometimes we don't know what we need. And sometimes we want uh, the wrong things. We, th- we think we need something, but we're actually wanting the wrong thing. So I don't know if you've ever been around a child when they've opened presents, and they open their present and they're excited about it, and then someone else opens a present, and they're like, oh, I'd rather have that present. Uh, we recently uh, had this with one of our boys, and it's kind of a nightmare, you know, because you're like, uh, embarrassed that they, you know, they don't like their present and all these things. But it was a great opportunity to remember uh, what Jesus uh, talked about in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, you know, you fathers who are evil know how to good give good gifts to your children. You know, what father whose son asks for a loaf of bread gives him a, a serpent? You know, no father, no good father. And so, He says, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? So the truth is, is that we don't need a lot of the things that we think we need. And if we need something to accomplish the mission that God has put us on, then he'll give it to us. He provides what we need to follow him. And in another part of Matthew, uh, Jesus talks about how God provides for birds and Uh, You know, they're not worried about what they'll have and the clothes and uh, the food and how tall they're going to be. All these things, uh, you know, the things we see in nature just trust God. They're they're set on a path and they know uh, what they need and they don't need much. And so a lot of the time we want more than we actually need. And I think sometimes we can want things and think we need things because we've gone off mission a little bit. And so when we think about our lives and how we're on a mission right now to proclaim the gospel to all people and to make disciples and to follow Christ and to repent of sin, you know, we don't need a ton to do that. You know, we may want a lot of things on earth, but those aren't things that we need. If we needed them, God would have given them to us. So what are some things that we do need? What are, what are some things that God has given us as good gifts? Well, most fundamentally, he's given us uh, the gospel. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and rise again so that we could be forgiven and have Christ's righteousness. That's our greatest need is righteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without the forgiveness and righteousness that comes through Jesus, 
uh, we would be lost. And we would not be on mission for sure. And so God provides everything we need. And most fundamentally, he provides the gospel. And so if you've been considering becoming a Christian or been doubting your salvation, you need to understand that the most fundamental thing about a Christian is that they've trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they've realized their own sinful state, and they've seen that Jesus paid the price on the cross for their sin, and that he rose again and he gives righteousness, his divine righteousness to all those who trust in him. If you've been considering becoming a Christian, that is the first step. You know, it's not about uh, helping everybody. That's not the most fundamental thing. At the, the base level, it's a belief and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And Christ has supplied that sufficiently in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Once we have trusted in Christ, we're able to go on mission We're able to start that path of following Jesus and doing what he's asked us to do. So he's provided the things that we need to do that. He's given us his indwelling spirit who helps us, who comforts us, who leads us, uh, who produces his fruit within us to help us show the world what Jesus is like. God has provided for us in the spirit. God has provided for us uh, with his word. We're able to know what we're supposed to be doing. We know the mission because of what God's word says. We're able to read the words of scripture and understand them and trust them and believe God's promises and move forward. And we've been given brothers and sisters in Christ, like we talked about earlier, who are there to encourage us to Uh, spur us on to good works, to help us to uh, continue to walk with the Lord when this sin is really enticing and I don't want to leave it and I don't want to repent of it and turn away from it. Our church family is there to say, hey, you've trusted in Christ. Walk with him, believe him, trust in his forgiveness. Do not forget the blood that was shed for you on the cross and repent. And God has provided all of these things to help us be on mission. We talked about earlier how in Matthew 6, God provides for our physical needs. Uh, we see God, uh, Jesus talk about how uh, they're not birds and lilies of the, of the valley aren't worrying about tomorrow. There's no worries. They, they know that God provides the seasons. God provides the sun. And there's no worry amongst animals. And the encouragement there is that when we stop worrying about things that we think we need, things that we want, we're able to turn away from those things and the airtime that we give to worries in our head and the fears of what might happen, and we're able to turn and be on mission for God. When we're you know, worried about how will God take care of me or how will I get this thing I want, we miss the person who's there asking a spiritual question, or who's there wanting to hear the gospel message. And we're able to be on mission when we're not distracted by worries and fears that our God who keeps his promises is taking care of. So my encouragement is to to trust the Lord because he provides for your needs. 
You don't have to, uh, you know, find security and comfort in your possessions or in your money. God has enabled us to freely give because he's providing for us. We don't have to hold on to things and and hoard uh, the stuff of this world because uh, he's already given that to us and he provides everything that we need and we're enabled uh, to do whatever the Lord asks us to do. And so these first two points show us that, that God keeps his promises and it shows his sovereignty as he directs the authorities over us. We get that behind the scenes look. And then also as he provides for all of our needs, he gives us everything we need to be on mission for him. And so we see God's sovereignty there. And in this last section in chapter two, we'll see our responsibility that even as God does these things, there's people that step forward in faith and obey. They go back to the land. They leave what they've known their whole lives. Okay, these are probably the children or grandchildren of the ones who were taken in captivity. It's been 70 years, and they, they go. And so imagine your own life. Imagine living somewhere, you know, since you were born, and God asking you to go to a different state to plant a church or to a different country to be a missionary. That would require you to really trust God's promises. And many people have done that, and they've, they've trusted the Lord and stepped forward in faith. And there's much more basic things that we can learn from that as well. But as we look at this, we'll see that we can trust God's promises as we step forward in faith. That's our responsibility We're not called to to do anything crazy. We're just called to believe God and to take steps of faith as he leads us. So thankfully, Buddy read all of this. We won't read it again. Uh, He did a really good job. But look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now these are the people of the province who came back from captivity. And notice the, the second word there, now these. That's a exclusive word. Everybody, all the Israelites, didn't go back. Some of them, I think God wanted to stay there, or maybe they were too old to travel or things like that, but I don't think everyone was on board with what God was doing. Before in, the, in uh, verse uh, 5, it talks about how God had led some of them to come back, but all of them, I think, should have come back. I think God's promise and what the hope still is for Israel is that God was regathering the people to the promised land and that all of the Israelites should have returned. But instead, only some went. And so as we look at uh, these people's names, these are important people. These are the people who left the comforts and securities of everything they had ever known and went back to Jerusalem. And being the nation of Israel wasn't an easy task. Uh, It was rigorous, uh, especially for uh, the priests and uh, the people of the temple. They lived a hard life that was strict and had lots of procedures. And so they were giving up the easy life to obey God and to follow and trust his promises and return back to the land. So verse Uh, one of chapter two says, now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity, 
of those who have been carried away from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. So some of them are coming back, and it lists a lot of people here. So the first couple here is Zerubbabel. So this is the same guy as uh, Sheshbazar from the chapter before. This is just his Jewish name. So he's a Davidic king. And then there's Jeshua. He's the high priest. And then Nehemiah there, he's a different Nehemiah from the book that's coming up. Uh, But then it lists a lot of people. So you go down to verse 36. It lists the priests who came back, verse 40, the Levites, uh, verse 41, the singers, verse 42, the gatekeepers, verse 43, the Nethanim. These were people who uh, were dedicated to temple service. Verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. Uh, Many people are coming back. Many people are uh, obeying and trusting the Lord. Something interesting happens in verse 59. Uh, There's some who come back who could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. So there's some people that want to go back that have lost the records that prove that they are true uh, descendants of Abraham. And so they're allowed to come back, but they're not allowed to be in temple service. Uh, Verse 62 talks about how they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And so they come back, and then in verses 64 through 67, we get a counting of all the stuff they're bringing back and all the people coming back, and it's, it's a large group. But I think one of the keys here is that God uses valuable space in Scripture. Every word is inspired. He uses that space to include the names of the families who trusted and obeyed, who, who came back to the land, um, even though it wouldn't have been easy. And that's an encouragement to us, you know, I, I don't think, you know, if, if we were up here reading this and Kuferschmidt was in here, we'd all stumble over it, right? But that's who these people are. They're just normal, random people, seemingly, that God called to go back and they trusted his promise and obeyed and they followed his leading. And so I think what we see here is that uh, these people, they took a risk. Oftentimes, taking a step of faith we don't see what's going to happen at the end. We know what God's promised, but we don't know what it's going to look like getting there and what it's going to look like when we get there. But we know that God is good and that he directs us along the way. And so these people, they, they take a risk here and return to Jerusalem. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were, uh, we wanted to go backpacking in Glacier National Park. And it's, it's a beautiful park. And after we paid for the sites that were non-refundable um, in the backcountry, uh, they made us watch a video that told us all the ways that we could die in the park. <laughs> so we, you know, we have our, our route we're going to go on, and you know, we're all ready to go. And they're like, oh, you need to watch this video before you go. So some of the things they listed were that you could be mauled by a bear, You could be mauled by a mountain lion. You could die from hypothermia. You could fall from a cliff for a height. Uh, You could die from dehydration. You could die from starvation. You could die from drowning. You could die from dysentery. 
So after this jolly video, uh, you know, we head out to the trailhead and start out uh, despite all these possible risks uh, that could have come to us. So none of those things happened to us. Uh, we did see a lot of deer. It, it was really cool. But oftentimes there's a principle in life that with little risk, there's little reward. Uh, that if we, if we don't do something uh, that seems a little risky, then we won't experience it. So for us, uh, going to uh, see the beautiful country, the beautiful wilderness of Glacier, never would have happened if we didn't take the risk of all those things that could have happened to us. Uh, that happens with uh, young men when they propose to uh, a woman. They risk uh, asking if she'll marry him, and she could say no. And he, he kind of risks all of that. Those things happen in life where we come to a point and we know that uh, I kind of need to risk it and, and see what will happen. And I think this happens uh, in our lives today. So we saw the Israelites there, and they, they were risking the life that they'd known forever. They were risking staying in Persia and experiencing uh, life as they'd known it in captivity uh, with all the people they've known. And they decide that we're going to head back. And later on in Ezra, we see when Ezra comes back, he's afraid of being robbed along the way and uh, ambushed. And there's all these fears as they return to the land. They return to a land of rubble. They're, they're leaving the, the beautiful city of Babylon and returning to what they know is a desolation of their land. And they're willing to risk all the securities they've experienced, all the comforts they've had, and follow God's promises despite the fears in their minds. And so how much more in the believer's life today can we do things that are risky? Because we know that God is good and that we're a child of God, safe in his arms forever. So I'm not saying we should do unwise things, but the wisdom of God is foolishness to the people of this world. So as a church, we give a ton of money to the proclamation of the gospel. And that's got to look really weird to unbelievers. Why would you give money to, to spread a story about a guy 2,000 years ago, right? That seems crazy. But we risk, we, we do things that to the wisdom of the world is unwise and risky, uh, you know, some people have uh, moved to other states or even just to plant a church nearby, to, to leave the church family that, that you know, and to, to do that, to go and start a new church is risky. And we can do things like that because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. And I think God is pleased when we remember his promises and when we obey him, even when it doesn't make sense to the world, even when it doesn't make sense on paper, we still obey him and do what he's called us to do. And so as a church family, uh, you know, we're experiencing, experiencing these things already. You know, we're in a gymnasium. It seems like it makes more sense to do something else instead of leaving the, the, the comforts and securities of what we've always known. But here we are, and it's great. I remember our first couple Sundays in here, it felt so weird and different, but looking around, I knew all of you. It was like, this is a weird being in the gym, but I know all of these people. This is my church family. And so that's just one example of 
where we, we risked it as a church family to please the Lord and to be all together. And so I think we're going to experience more of those things personally as we seek to be on mission and to share the gospel with unbelievers in our personal lives, but also as a church family as we uh, look at changes that don't seem comfortable or maybe don't even seem wise on paper or according to worldly standards. But we can trust the Lord who keeps his promises and we can follow him it's easy to doubt God's promises. That's kind of our default. I think almost every day we have to remind ourselves of the beauty of God's character and promises, or we're, we'll quickly forget. You know, we, as a default, we wake up ready to, you know, make our lives work, to make our mission work in life, and we need to be quick to remember God's promises. If we doubt God's promises, then we'll fear potential outcomes of moving forward as a church family. If we doubt God's promises, we won't evangelize. We won't disciple. We won't encourage one another in the body. We won't uh, call our brothers and sisters back to Christ when they're living in unrepentant sin. So to speak, we'll, we'll stay behind in Babylon. We'll be left uh not following God's promises and God as he leads us. And so we have to remember that God is faithful and that he's provided everything that we need. We have uh, the Lord Jesus. We have our salvation in him and we have each other. We're united in Christ as a body. And God has given us everything we need to follow him and trust him and to be on mission for him today. Again, it's easy to, to live in doubt and fear of what might happen if we do uh, step forward in faith and be on mission for God. But how exciting is that? How exciting was this adventure for this people as they went back to their homeland? And how exciting is it for us as a church to have opportunities and as individuals to step forward in faith and follow God's promises and to trust him? I hope that uh, the people of Israel are an encouragement. Our mission isn't to go and build the temple again. Our mission is to get on board with what Jesus is doing and building his church and to personally walk with the Lord and with each other in faith. And so I pray that each one of us would do that. And I'm so thankful for God and his promises and that he's always faithful to keep them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, your unchangeable character. And that no matter what comes, we can trust you. And we thank you for the promises in your word that uh, you will hold us fast. Uh, that all those who are given to Christ from you, that Jesus will not cast us out. And that we as a church body can be uh, united and follow Christ our head as a church family. We pray that you'd help us to do that faithfully and to love and trust you. And that we as individuals would uh, step forward in faith to follow uh, God's promises. We thank you for your faithfulness and pray that you would encourage us from your word today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to God be the glory.